Welcome to a podcast on fire on Romeo Must Die and Election. And Johnny Toast, Stable of Milky Way, players and crew deliver the first in an epic saga about the rigid rules and regulation in a triad election. It still means deception, betrayal and violence in 2005's election. But in the first half, another Hong Kong cinema action star tries to make his mark in Hollywood. After playing the villain in Lethal Weapon 4, Jet Li gets his first English language lead role in Romeo Must Die from the year 2000. I'm Kenneby, and since uh, there's an East-West uh, mixture here, it's only fitting to bring in as uh, the co-host, uh, the ever-so-lovely, knowledgeable and the man with the translations, which is, of course, Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Ken. How you doing? It's all right. Thank you. And uh, uh, I'm also uh, happy to bring you on d- during these uh, mixtures. Uh, they're not a requisite, but since, since you are on the East Screen, West Screen podcast, uh, that's my excuse. And sometimes you and I have talked of uh, when Hong Kong actors uh, make their uh, mark in Hollywood and uh, their first lead role in lead roles in Hollywood. Yes, Jet Li is, is uh, mainland Chinese, but has worked in Hong Kong action cinema. So it's... Um, that that's the line you draw. You don't you don't draw the line to his mainland action cinema work. You know, so uh, so it's going to be interesting to talk of uh, whether this, whether or not this uh, this experiment actually worked or not. Because uh, uh, it's not like Chai and Vat and Jet Li are epic mega Hollywood movie stars. That it it was an experiment that uh, they alternated between uh, Hong Kong and China, sometimes Hollywood. But hey. He's still appearing in English language movies at the time of recording. It's probably out by the time you hear this, I think. But uh, isn't Jet Li um, playing a role of some sort in Mulan? Yeah, I didn't check the cast list, but I so if, I mean I'm a huge fan of animation, so I can match most of the characters together. For example, Crystal Liu plays Mulan, and Donnie Yen plays the 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 male general, whatever. Does it love interest? My God, that's the age difference. Anyway. <laughs> Um, Gong Li's witch character is a completely new thing, which a lot of people have picked up on. It's like, Disney's like, oh, this is a realistic take on Mulan, but then we have a witch. So <laughs> that was a bit weird. It's like a Monkey King 2 uh, ripple. Like, she was good in Monkey King 2. Let's write her another witch role. <laughs> See how that works out. I wonder if Disney saw Monkey King 2. I mean, who saw Monkey King 2? I liked it. Um, it was Aaron, man. I liked it. It was better than it was better than the first film. I agree, but I don't know if I don't know what what Disney was thinking about adding like a witch. Maybe John Fusco was the writer, so maybe that's why. But um, uh, yeah, Joe, I have no idea what Jet Li is playing in the film, but I think he is in it. Otherwise, what else is he doing? I mean, because he's kind of in half retirement mode, right? The last thing he did was a Jack Ma uh, short. Um, and there was that whole thing where people were really uh, worried about his health. Then it turns out it was a no big thing. Um, but yeah, he doesn't do many movies now. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed his uh, development, and I think I have some notes on that. But uh, one of my favorite movies of Jets from the last few years, which was uh, Ocean Heaven. I really enjoyed Ocean Heaven, his drama. It, it, yes, it's a terminal disease drama, which sounds like tropey, tropey, tropey melodrama. But I really enjoyed uh, Ocean Heaven for for the choices. Um, it made and uh, he was good. It wasn't like uh, the action star Jet Li, but rather it's Jet Li the actor. I mean, yeah, I hate to say it, um, I, and I know I might offend some fanboys out there, but Jet Li is a much better dramatic actor than Jackie Chan. I mean, Jackie Chan would never pull off something like Ocean Heaven. I mean, he uh, Jet Li in, in in comparison has actually made a fairly good transition into dramatic acting. I mean, way before. 
Jackie Chan did. I mean, yeah, he was doing a lot of action films, but then you he was do things like Fearless, which is uh, a very strong dramatic role in addition to a martial arts role. Warlords, that was a very strong dramatic role as well. And in Ocean Heaven was him doing full-on drama, and I think he's a much better dramatic actor than people give him credit for. I very much agree, and uh, he, he's good with um, the, the non-verbal stuff, actually. Uh, so you, you can even see that in some of the Wong Fei Hong movies. Uh, there, there's a key moment in part two, for instance, where essentially Rosamund Kwan confesses her feelings for him. And he doesn't know what to do, so he just stares. And it sounds comedic, but it's actually a very good re- uh, non-verbal reaction amidst a lot, lot of action. Excuse me, Jet Li's uh, biggest disadvantage is voice. So if you remember, um, if you're a fan of Hong Kong films, you, I actually, I have never, I grew up watching some Jet Li movies, right? I mean, who, who didn't? Well, who grew up in around uh, 90s watching Hong Kong cinema? But those who watch 90s Hong Kong cinema and watch Jet Li movies, they have never heard his real voice until... They even have a line in Ether Weapon 4. I think he did, but only like four lines or something. In Hong Kong, you would be dead. I think that that, yes. that was one of his few lines. Yeah, that was a great line. But you, I've never heard Jet Li's real voice until I watched Lethal Weapon 4. Yeah, probably the same. And then uh, the only other times I remember him being in sync sound in somewhat older movies was um, Hitman. Uh, and also Once Upon a Time in China and America was actually mostly a Mandarin sync sound movie. So he, mm. he acted in Mandarin in that one. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's quite a distinct voice. It's not this burly, manly voice. I'm Wang Feiyong, damn it. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's, uh, but, 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 but it, it's endearing. You know what? Uh, before we go, uh, get on uh, with things here, you're, you're a man, Kevin, who's not content with just podcasting and watching films and getting hired to do translation work. But you're, you're also taking your sort of gathered experience and uh, going into business yourself. And if I understood things correctly, you, you essentially formed a company or uh, co-formed a company that offers up translation work so, so i guess my question is is it so is that still in the works um or are you still establishing the business as a matter of fact oh we started the company uh, me and uh maggie lee who is the chief variety film critic uh, asia film critic for variety and also programmer for tokyo film festival and vancouver film festival um we're good friends and we started a company um zagaten media back in april so um essentially it's an entity for us to take on jobs i mean i've been doing translation work since i think 2013 i got no 2012 2010 so i've been doing it for quite a while but always as sort of um, on a on a, a freelance basis, and aside from my next to my you know real job, but now I'm doing it as a full time job, and um, yeah, the company remains now the company is just something that I'm doing it under, but it's just uh, the same old translation and copywriting work that I've been doing for the last nine years or so, except now I'm doing full time. Oh, so 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 you can still maintain your sort of network, and uh, so so it's not more difficult going into business by yourself, and people want take your course or get in touch with you get in touch with you just because you have your own business now it, it, it like sounds like uh, it's just an extension of what you were doing and you're still keeping busy you're not waiting for the phone to ring necessarily well no if anything that um i was actually i actually did it to get deeper into the film business you know uh, my partner is not just doing my so the company i'm doing translation work but hopefully the company will do other things in the future um hopefully some development work and even producing and uh one day someday many years later hopefully i can even you know make a film under the company banner you know essentially it's just a name for us to 
make everything official to mm-hmm. not just be a freelancer anymore. So I become a an employee of my own company in a, in a sense. Um, it's just always having a label to um, to so identify yourself, and it's always a bit better to have a company name um, so that you know. Uh, I can somehow maybe maybe even train up other translators in the, in the future. And and just for the record, in your case, translation work can mean anything from actually translating subtitles to to materials, written materials surrounding movies and even festivals and things like that. Yeah, essentially. Uh, so anything from uh, scripts, subtitles, um, a lot of the market. Um, the market synopsis that you see, you know, the on flyers for film companies. Um, I do copywriting work for film festivals, both in Hong Kong and abroad. And yeah, that's that's pretty big. That's a pretty wide spectrum. So I, I sound like it's not that much, but it's a pretty wide spectrum of stuff. I'm busy, Ken. I'm barely keeping it together. <laughs> it's too yeah. much. Uh, it, it it's very cool. Um, is there any official uh, official uh, online presence for for your company or? Um... Uh, or how, in in what way can, can you plug it for people who want to go and look you up and uh, hire hire your services? Yes, there is a website. We have a website um, that I built myself. As you will see, that I t- it is clearly that oh, it's just one dude who built a website. It's not like GeoCities or anything, but you know, it's not a very you know, it's, it's, like it's a, a, a nineteen ninety five so. website compatible with Netscape and things like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I haven't tested a Netscape uh, <laughs> compatibility, unfortunately. So so don't use a Netscape uh, navigator to look at a website. But it is zaka10media.com. That's uh, what is a European podcast, right? So I should say Z Z A K K A T E N M E D I A zaka10media.com. Uh, and there's a contact form on there. But just to make things simple, if you want to contact me, I am at Kevin at asiainsinema.com. Excellent, and we'll obviously link to the website. And uh, good luck on this and uh, this sort of extension of your uh, of your ongoing creativity. That it's always nice to hear that uh, you're not um, si- sitting there and uh, going around on the same carousel. You're actually expanding and enhancing, and uh, seeing where that can take you. So uh, that's always inspiring and uh, and uh, good to hear. Thank you very much, Ken. In the meantime, uh, some, some short contact information before we get into this. Uh, uh, this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network, and um, it's in all simplicity for all your Podcast on Fire network needs. You can go to our website. All relevant social media links are available in the show post, and uh, we have the big handy buttons at the top of our website leading to our social media presences on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, you can subscri- subscribe to us on iTunes and review us on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts, and uh, even if you just leave a star rating we would very much appreciate it and even a, a, a subscribe click the little subscription button so you'll have your show delivered to you in a timely manner in the podcast app of your choice so uh, let's uh let's uh, get onto it and uh, do a little musical break and before Romeo must die uh, if you grew up with uh, with the movie and around the 2000 there was a hit song connected to Romeo must die sung by its uh, female lead and uh, we're going to play a little bit of that and i'm sure you'll recognize it even if you have forgotten the name of the of the artist and the song but uh, uh, we'll jog your memory uh, memory and then we'll be back to discuss uh, romeo must die what would you do to get to me what would you say to have your way would you give up or try again if i hesitate to let you in now would you be yourself or play your role tell all the boys i keep it low if i say no would you turn away or play me off or would you stay up 
and welcome back in the first movie of this episode that we're going to talk a little bit about is Romeo Must Die from 2000 and uh, the plot doesn't need to be complex and if you go to IMDb you can find a, com- uh, a plot that isn't uh, complex and for good reason so, so simple to the point an avenging cop played by Jet Li seeks uh, out his brother's killer and falls for the daughter played by Alia of a businessman who is involved in a money deal with his uh, father so a little bit of dueling families here and uh, there is some background to discuss, including uh, a little tidbit about uh, what they drew upon for their their uh, action gangster martial arts story. But uh, regardless, uh, Jet Li did appear in 1998's Lethal Weapon 4 as the villain. And as Kevin said, he was very much uh, wordless. Uh, that might have been the only line. Otherwise, he was the stoic, very dangerous uh, martial arts tinted villain. And... I, I, I remember that was still that was still okay. It wasn't beneath him necessarily um, to 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 get a to get a villain as the first role because he, I I felt the impact was okay in Lethal Weapon Four. Granted, I've only seen it once, so maybe it's an uh, actual fact just way too short and um, and uh, not long lasting. But uh, that, that's what a revisit is for, I suppose. But he did get a lead role, and that was Romeo Must Die, and uh, he starred alongside singer Alia, who also made her big screen uh, debut. And uh, some of you may remember, she actually sadly died the year after in a plane crash. So that, that was a su- successful singing career and uh, a very short movie career cut, tragically, um, tragically short. Uh, she, she did a, a horror movie, like a vampire movie as well that, that, that I'm blanking on right now and that, that might have been released Queen of the Dam that's right that's right and that, that might have been released um, actually sh- shortly after she tragically uh, tragically died so that was her only two uh, movies so very young and very sad and uh, alongside Jet uh, Corey Yoon joined the production as fight choreographer and would walk alongside Jet in this capacity for the majority of his English language movies but by the time uh, The Forbidden Kingdom came around and unleashed aka Danny the Dog came around, Yoon Wo-ping was the action director of uh, choice. And I'm not saying that they fell out or anything. Uh, Corey was always busy. Um, he was uh, he was also working with the Europeans, just like uh, Jet was on Danny the Dog, because uh, Corey worked on the Transporter movies for Luc Besson's company and all of that. And Danny the Dog, I think, was uh, done under that uh, Luc Besson uh, producing, uh, producing company, Europa, I think um, they're called. But... Um, yeah, Roman Must Die, it, it did fairly well, it seems like. I mean, it, it uh, debuted at uh, the number two spot at the US box office behind Aaron Brockovich. It was out uh, around that time. And it ended up grossing around 55 million US dollars uh, in America and about 91 million worldwide. And with a production budget of 25 million, what would consider that a fair hit uh, at the time? Uh, maybe not a blockbuster, but uh, a fair hit. It wasn't that well received critically. Um, Jet was singled out for his performance, but the chemistry between him and uh, uh, Alia, people didn't think there was a spark necessarily there, but individually they were still given good notices in general for their performances, but uh, the chemistry and the spark wasn't like this slam dunk in the eyes of uh, uh, critics. And uh, action tended to be singled out as being over-edited and uh, was therefore not given much praise. 
but uh, it, it did make a splash, I mean, including in the soundtrack department. The soundtrack album contained four songs by Alea and its, uh, its direction in general. And you hear that, obviously, in the movie. Uh, the, the, the sort of soundscape that they gave the movie leaned more towards uh, hip-hop and the R&B genre. Uh, but the soundtrack album uh, made its debut uh, at number three on the Billboard chart and sold uh, 1.5 million uh, copies in the US, according to a 2001 statistic. And she had a top one hit with the song Try Again, and the video features her and Jet Li in footage shot specifically for the video. It uh, it was partly set in this Hall of Mirrors type of uh, setting, which obviously is, uh, is a, a little nod towards uh, Enter the Dragon. And uh, you could also see uh, uh, Jet Li doing some wire work uh, in the movie, and they had Corey on there to choreograph uh, the action in the video as well. So, And also in terms of inspiration, it, it Romeo Must Die had a loose framework connected to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, uh, with the feuding families in this case being African American and Chinese. Uh, but that's as far as it went. I mean, they didn't do a, whole, a full Bas and everything is supposed to be delivered in Shakespearean dialogue. Yeah, in, in the case of Romeo and Juliet, from like uh, three years, um, three years earlier. And I, I don't know about you, uh, Kevin. I, everybody loved that movie, Romeo and Juliet, but maybe it's. English is my second language. I just couldn't get past the sort of forced barrier and the forced notion of everything in this uh, modern, hip, urban gangster setting being delivered with Shakespearean dialogue. In the case of Romeo and Juliet, I just couldn't get through it, to be honest. I, I still haven't seen Boss Lerman's uh, Romeo and Juliet. I know because I, I, I mean, I went to high school around that time. So it's supposed to be like my movie. But for some reason, I still haven't gotten to it. But I mean, while you're talking about this, I, I still can't figure out why this movie is called Romeo Must Die, because Romeo doesn't die in the film, <laughs> if you're talking about the feuding families. He's given the nickname at the end, like, time to die, Romeo, but obviously it's not Romeo, and, uh, you know, it's loose. It's it's super loose, and uh, it's not necessarily well conceptualized, uh, but uh, that's what they said, and that looks good in a promotional blurb. Hey, hey, it's uh, like a modern upgrade to the old-timey old play. And uh, that's how we get audiences, I suppose. Speaking of Shakespearean dialogue and things like there, there was this uh, Ray Fiennes movie that he directed. That that was also modern. It was set, uh, it was set in it was like a a political movie, a war movie, partially. I don't remember the name of it now, but that was also all performed in uh, in Shakespearean dialogue. Uh, he is in it. Uh, uh, Gerald Butler is in it, and Brian Cox, and uh, they're all they're all delivering that with. Uh, the dialogue straight from the play and that worked granted i had to watch it in like two or three sittings because it, it's a lot to adjust to when people are talking in exact dialogue that william shakespeare wrote but uh, in the case of that it worked it's it, it called uh, it's not with it's not with a c something but uh, colonious or something like that that's right that's right slight spoilers but um according to the 2006 documentary the slanted screen there was actually a deleted scene in Romeo Must Die where Jet Li and Aaliyah, where they kissed. And that was uh, towards the end of the film. It was ultimately, according to the documentary, cut off the test screenings with an urban audience, you know, made a determination that it didn't play well. Uh, Lee further elaborated on that on his own website that editorially it didn't really fit because it happened after he had just witnessed the death of a family member towards the end and it didn't feel necessarily 
correct tone wise to have a romantic embrace and kiss at that point in the movie so uh, that was his defense uh, but uh, but they shot both uh, uh, both versions of it so and uh, finally uh, this movie was the directorial debut of polish cinematographer andrei bratkowiak who had previously worked in that capacity on acclaimed and Academy Award-nominated films, such as Terms of Endearment, Priest's Honor, and Falling Down. And as a director, he had um, he was mostly active in the in the early 2000s uh, with this run of action films that included uh, Romeo Must Die, the Steven Seagal movie Exit Wounds, Cradled to the Grave with Jet Li again, and also the FBS uh, adaptation Doom, starring The Rock. So uh, that's uh, how long ago that was uh, when The Rock was still the rock and when we still got you know when doom was hot enough uh you know as a game to warrant a um a movie adaptation uh, i don't think it was very much acclaimed or anything but uh, they did it uh, latest film to date uh, from andre is uh, a 2017 actioner called maximum impact which is, uh, was a russian american film starring kelly who mark dacascos and danny trejo i'm sure you have it on your desk and shelf and it's been watched multiple times because it's that kind of movie it sounds like maximum impact i'm like i'm like no no can russian american film i'm like no i do not have Kelly who? of maximum impact on my desk it almost sounds like where was steven seagal in that cost list you know it's a russian american film after all I mean, I, I have like I have like twenty thousand streaming services, and I still haven't heard of that film. I can't believe it. Well, that's uh, that's what he did, uh, Andre. But obviously, being a cinematographer by trade, um, he's uh, he's not out of work or anything. So, but that's uh, that that's uh, the background. I'm gonna throw throw it over to Kevin for a brief, uh, short opinion first of all of uh, Romeo Must Die. My God. Well, okay. See, the film came out in 2000, and I I was uh, 16 at the time, so I just gave away my age. Um, so this is like a very I wouldn't say pivotal movie to my, but you know, at the time it was a very uh, a film that I looked forward to very much. I mean, I didn't see it in the cinema because it was R rated, and I figured my dad wouldn't be interested in watching gently in an urban action movie. It's Shakespeare. It's like a play and stuff, Dad. That didn't work either. No, no, he's not, and he's not into like martial arts films. So it was a it was a hard sell, and it didn't get very good reviews. Um, because it was a time where you needed, uh, he needed a good review from a local paper to convince him to go, and he he's just not, you know, this one wasn't gonna, you know, get that. Also, I have to say, this movie is set in Oakland, which is just across the bay from where I grew up in San Francisco. Not shot there at all. I think it was not shot, in shot Canada. there at all. Yes, it was shot in Canada, of course. And the thing is, watching this film again, I'm like, they're talking about this the whole film. There's a subplot. By the way, the the whole plot with the whole gangster thing makes no sense whatsoever. I was just like, I couldn't follow it. Yeah. And you know, it's way too complicated. Not just for an action film, just too complicated for its own good. To a gist, it's about this these developers buying up uh, developments in front uh, in front of the bay. Uh, when where they are building a new stadium for the Raiders, which is a real problem because Oakland has had the Ra- Oakland Raiders, the football team, coming back and go uh, come and go like multiple times. So as a Bay Area resident, yes, I felt the pain about the Raiders. So I was like, I was totally getting the feels there. But this whole thing about development, seaside development, made no sense to me knowing the geography of Oakland. So the thing is, it helped me out of the film right away. 
it's a film in my child, in my teenage years. So those films people tend to remember a lot, and I remember not remembering anything from that film. Although I was very um, excited about it because you know, Jet Li, oh my god, you know, headlining a, a Hollywood film um, seemed like a big deal at the time. But in hindsight, it was kind of like the beginning of Joe Silver, producer who did Ethan Weapon and a whole lot of action films in the eighties and nineties. That was him when he turned into like the urban Luc Besson, <laughs> when he just you know churned out. You named uh, a couple of films by the same director. He did Cradle to the Grave and Exit Wounds and and this one. Uh, well, Doom wasn't part of it, but that whole those three films, they're all Joe Silver films, all Joe Silver films made for that urban audience, um, cheaply made. Twenty five million is pretty cheap. And he was sort of churning them out like once a year at most or something. I remember watching them the, the commercials on TV and just like, man, it's like a low rent, low rent urban action film. And it just felt like and then in hindsight, you realize, oh, my God, Joe Silver's pulled, pulled a Luke Besson because that's what Luke Besson does. When he's not directing, he's producing these low rent action films directed by other people that he writes. Joe Silver's not a writer, by the way. Thank God. Uh, even though I'm sure he put on so this one of those films where a director doesn't matter it's about the voice of the producer or it's about the calculations of the producer and romeo must die was very much a calculation by the producer because there is a huge demand for kung fu cinema among the urban or african-american audience so it was a very smart calculation on joe silver's part make something you know kind of low budget but with a huge you know action star uh, and in the front the problem is the, the, the low budget is really clear um, on screen because you can tell by the action sequences. Watching it now, it's just a very much a weird – it's very much inter, in, a, a um, sort of a Hong Kong BC-grade action film. And there's so much like cultural inconsistencies that I could bring up, but that would take us forever. But it is a very odd film and – at the time, it seemed like such a big deal, but in hindsight now, like it really plays like a direct-to-video film. Although, mind you, R.I.P. Aaliyah. I, I love I love Aaliyah. Um, when when she was still around, I love her music. I still you know like her music. And Try Again was a huge thing because you know I went to high school in that during that time. So it, it was everywhere, but not this like ear, annoying earworm or anything like that. It was genuinely good for that genre. And as I said, I'm it's not my type of genre. And when I hear it today, it's just like overproduced and overprocessed. And back then, we really weren't uh, in that era. Uh, you know, the actual chops could come through yeah yeah i mean the song the song was very much again part of my childhood so well teenage years so formative years so i can't be unbiased about it you know when something that really sort of is part of those formative years it's hard to be real critical about it um and you know it wasn't it was before you know it became like a hipster i'm not saying i'm a hipster i'm just saying it was for a while <laughs> um, well, taste, taste cultivate when you grow up right but the thing is you give a lot of leeway a lot of excuses you um you have a lot you're a lot more lenient to things that you experience that you watch that you listen to during your formative years so it's it's very weird now watching this film especially the music because the music is actually co uh, composed by timbaland who was Aaliyah's producer so if you if you've heard Aaliyah's song you, you hear timbaland everywhere and even um even he, he always makes himself known um even on like well later he would do like justin timberlake and you would hear timbaland again and and every scene it is one of those films i think this was the early days when you sell a film you also sell like, the soundtrack so the soundtrack for this film did very well of course and but it was sort of the, the beginning where the soundtrack selling the soundtrack was 
just as important as selling the film. So it had this very weird hip hop, constant hip hop urban radio sound that really didn't care whether it fit with the film or not. You don't hear a lot of composed music or a lot of the composed music uh, doesn't stick with you because the, the, the movie has a beat of choice, uh, which is the genre music. I think it did kind of step out because you could go with a very generic regular film score but instead here is Timberland throwing out all these R&B beats whether it matches a scene or not I mean one thing that really jumped out was the scene where when uh, Daryl Lindo who is actually better than the actual movie himself Daryl Lindo was a great actor and I've always liked him even though I think he's very underrated he, he 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 when he was taking um Aaliyah home to a room and you would think like there's little you would think some kind of generic uh orchestra or symphonic score something that's very you know um you don't really remember but it's something serious or something that's very heavy but no you get the timbaland that r&b beat and you're like what like it feels like the whole film is selling the soundtrack rather than really doing a score and yeah and that was really the beginning of a trend. And in fact, it still happens today. I mean, look at how big of a hit Black Panther soundtrack was. So it, it, it was a trend that really stuck. And it was be, and, and part of it is because of the urban audience. And it started with these urban films. Selling the soundtrack mattered more than the actual film. And let me put a pin in it for now. And uh, we'll get into some more details. Uh, uh, as for my little first blurb here, I can't be mad at the movie. But at the same time, it does very little for me. It, it wasn't necessarily this film with and premise that combined with Jet Li just screamed promise. And I think that's because you couldn't do what you did with Chai Fat. He was a he did John Woo's action movies. So therefore that's how you tra- transition him into Hollywood. Jet Li was known for martial arts movies, often period movies. So and and this couldn't be Wong Fei Hung goes to America. They already did that. Right. Well, once upon a time in China, America. but uh, you know, it was a it was a cowboy movie, obviously. So it 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 was this. Okay, well, what is this going to be like? I know he's done modern movies, but still, his uh, his trademark movies have been um, you know the period uh, martial arts movies. So so I gave the film a chance, and also um, why not embrace that challenge of slotting Jet Li into something that Hong Kong cinema fans might not be used to. It's not a pre-made template like the replacement killers was. For Chai Fat, it's the killer. And that that was okay uh, as a first movie. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it is really forgettable and it definitely has trouble finding a voice and identity. I think it's really scattershot and doesn't really know what to do with the action and really what to do with the core romance either. But they're, they're good in their individual ways, Jet Li and Aliyah. But um, I, I agree with the critics there. Sparks aren't flying necessarily. But uh, still, along with Delroy Lindo, they, they are kind of still the strong points of uh, uh, of uh, the movie. Obviously, the movie, while cl- even if it's not clever, it, it sets up the glossy world of fancy cars and fancy suits and immaculate uh, weaponry. You know, even if it's a violent movie, it's a it's a glossy world uh, here in here in Oakland, i.e., British Columbia. Also, it was uh, the beginning of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with DMX, but it was the beginning of some producers trying to make DMX into a movie star because he would later do Cradle to the Grave. He would be lead. But here he has this sort of smaller supporting role. But if you know, like, how big DMX was at the time, suddenly he would, like, jump out. He's in the first scene of the movie and he has a machine gun and he's like... This is the beginning of trying to sell DMX as an actor, which never happened. And yeah, that was a really strange addition. 
Yeah, I only remember him from appearing with uh, with Jet Li uh, subsequently in Cradle to the Grave and not, not really making an impact either. I've, I've, uh, the, that movie was one that went out in <laughs> went into one ear and out the other. Like, I've, I've seen it. It has a two in the title, and that's all I remember from Cradle to the Grave. I must say, um, DMX's best, best, best role as an actor is a little cameo that he did for a Chris Rock film called Top 5, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he he plays himself in it. And um, it was directed by Chris Rock, and Chris Rock plays this sort of comedian, whatever. And uh, he somehow lands in jail, and DMX is in the next cell. <laughs> Playing himself like he's DMX is in the next cell. And this is like after he had his like heyday, you know. It was after all his hit songs and after um, uh, big things. So... I'm not going to tell you what happened, but he, there he was, and it's like the best role that is, it trumps anything acting that DMX has done. Yeah. Well, may, maybe worth uh, seeing there. Maybe some meta humor that's actually effective. Who knows? So, uh, let, let's talk action a little bit because he, the, the movie is uh, sort of we, we need to sell this in action, and it's a modern urban, uh, urban setting. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we got to address some things here because action is problematic, <laughs> and I don't blame Corey. I don't blame Corey at all. There's evidence in the first uh, action scene that features Russell Wong. They didn't didn't get Michael. There is a helicopter in the movie, but uh, they didn't get Michael. It's uh, Russell Wong is in this movie. And that choreography, I mean, partly it looks like admirable physically and the timing is there. But then they mix this movie with uh, wire work that also gets taken to Matrix-like levels of unrealistic and I, I i was writing those notes before myself and like oh, this is unacceptable but then i kept thinking to myself hong kong movies have done this they, they've taken modern settings and enhanced that with wire assisted action but the problem well not the problem but the thing there was it sometimes was just simply better and better better as made and it wasn't this floaty computer enhanced sometimes doing 360 kickathons around a room uh, on a wire that's been removed and it all looks like they're in the matrix because it's so floaty and fakey and i think when you get that wrong from scene one in terms of your martial arts action scenes then you got a big problem on your hand but i don't blame Corey for that because this is not the taste of Corey. i think this is the taste of the man you brought up the man probably smoking a cigar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, um, <laughs> let, let's do what those Matrix kids did. Yes, just on the heels of the Matrix. Yeah, it, it looks dumb. It really looks dumb. It looked dumb then. It looks dumb now, and it takes you out of the action. That I, I wouldn't have minded if it was wire enhanced, but they got to do the mix of uh, computer generated wire removal and make it all floaty and unrealistic. And it doesn't work here. And it might not have worked in a ton of Hong Kong movies, but they didn't do it in the Matrix style necessarily. Uh, so, any thoughts on that? How, how how they do actually, if that even works, that uh, sort of almost uh, wuxia <laughs> style uh, uh, skill set that the characters have? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the act of money shot of the film, and this is not a spoiler because if you grew up with the movie like I did, Every trailer, every ad showed that shot of Russell Wong and, and Jet Li doing that impossible feet-first jump kick at each other, which is physically impossible. We all know physics, we all know it's impossible, but that was the money shot, and it didn't make sense then. If you watch the film, it doesn't make any more sense either, And because Hollywood doesn't do action choreographer. 
you know, I think the Matrix was a bit unique because the, the Wachowski brothers knew what they were doing. They knew what Hong Kong cinema operates on, and yeah. and they know how your wallpaper works. But you're working in an industry that doesn't have, you know, in Hong Kong, the director would leave the action stuff to the action choreographers means they're also directing the action scenes they're not just doing the action they're also directing the scenes that's not something that hollywood directors are comfortable with you know you you talk about union systems and and guilds and all that stuff and they're not comfortable with leaving anything to anyone else to do so all corey can do is execute what the director wants which is probably why a lot of martial arts choreography had a tough time in Hollywood. Uh, they went there from Hong Kong because they didn't have control of the action on screen. Here it was, you have a director who doesn't do a, who hasn't had much directorial experience, who hasn't done much action, who has never done a, a martial arts film, and just sort of um, thinking about how to come up with cool shots. And mind you, there are some very cool shots. Um, and yeah, the action just feels very bland here. It's nothing like uh, what what um I mean, Lethal Weapon Four is a little different because Lethal Weapon Four you're working with Richard Donner who you know mm-hmm. who is you know a huge a very experienced veteran action director excuse me who knew what he was doing on Lethal Weapon Four and that film wasn't just martial arts anyway and here you have an experienced director who probably won't give much control to the action choreographer and you have the man the cigar just sort of sitting in the back and say I want it like this I want it like this I want it like this so yeah it. it and with the budget they were given, you end up something like this. Yeah, for sure. And uh, then when when you mix it with the with the feuds and all of that, n- none of that is very riveting. As you said, the whole issue of buying up uh, uh, deeds and property totally not interesting. But but at very at the very least, there are some some examples of better acting than the movie deserves. In the case of Delroy Lindo, he he seems to be good at, and he is good at sort of quiet sincere nobility his daughters doesn't want anything to do with his business and therefore doesn't want anything to do with her brother but there there is a family bond there and those scenes are some of the better in the movie because Delroy Lindo is the kind of noble and uh, compelling and present actor that you 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 sit up and listen to see to see those um, choices because he isn't he isn't a big you know crazy Al Pacino gangster head of the family but he's uh, he's calm, and uh, you listen to that. And uh, I like actors who can command the screen, but there was no reason for him to command the screen. And this one, it's, he's way too good for the movie. And even Henry O, oh, to an extent, as the head of the Chinese family, the, the veterans do better than uh, than the young ones because the whole package doesn't click in terms of depicting this uh, edgy violent glossy gangster world it's it simply doesn't but the more real the more sincere comes comes through in the um, in the acting from from the elder older veterans uh, i'd say i mean the greatest thing that there were lindo does in the film is that despite a terrible script with less than ideal dialogue he sells every single line as his own you never feel like he's reading a line. You feel like he's really living that. It's really, he convinces you that's what he's really saying. That's really the sign of a great actor. I mean, it's not a great actor. It's not about how many, you know, prestige films you do. It's how you do with the material you're given. I mean, you can be a great actor in a terrible film. I don't think, I don't think the two have to go together. 
And you know, sometimes actors just ham it up when they realize they're not in a good movie. This is, might not be the best example, but just because I heard the story the other day, Matt Damon was talking about John Malkovich in Rounders, where John Malkovich plays the, uh, a Russian character. You know, the famous uh, line from that movie is, Give the man his money. And that was essentially <laughs> what John Malkovich did from scene one. Just ham it up like crazy. Rounders is a regarded movie. It's not a you know a, a, a panned movie or anything but he, he literally as he did some of his first dialogue where he went into high-pitched high-pitched noises even and then he let he leaned into matt damon in between takes and said to him i'm a terrible actor so essentially he was making his choices and having fun but so but sometimes they just go for it and it uh and it doesn't land and then you come out to delroy linda where it does land and you you enjoy those sections and the movie sort of starts to craft a little world based on his um, choices alone but uh, none of them none of it that comes then subsequently in terms of the lighter stuff does it works you know i can't can't, can't think for life of me anything that, that i found enjoyable or funny and boy do they try when they bring in anthony anderson as the goofy bodyguard who you know gets beaten up a lot and says borderline probably very racist things to jet leave throughout the entire movie everything from dim sum to rice noodle or whatever that is very weird because a man that racist shouldn't know what dim sum and rice noodle are so he must have <laughs> some knowledge of chinese culture especially in 2000 to know because rice noodle it's a very specific thing Granted, he heard Jet Li uh, play in the delivery boy. Dim sum, dim sum. But Rice Noodle, Anthony Anderson's character, comes up uh, with him <laughs> by himself. But, uh, you know, he's an improv guy, and I'm sure he, he has his skill set in that um, department. But uh, it doesn't land here. It just is pretty tiresome. And what, one of the sort of ill-fits action-wise is that they try to make Jet Li a little bit like Jackie Chan at one point with him pulling you know jackets over people's heads and so say using props like that and at one point someone's trousers fall fall down and they're they're wearing very peculiar underwear in one particular fight scene that takes place in an alley or whatever and it's 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 this ill these ill-fitting elements that it's certainly not Jet Li, but just, again, the voice of the American filmmakers a little bit. Like, yeah, that worked. Like, I, I've seen those Hong Kong movies. Let's do that. That will work for an urban audience, right? I'm guessing it sort of did, based on box office. But watching it now, it just has so many ill-fitting pieces that doesn't create sort of an entertaining, compelling hole where you're swept away even on the level of a B-movie. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, the pieces are have trouble fitting yes especially when we're sort of asked to take it seriously at points too with this being so to say a family drama it's so weird that well first of all the uh the, i mean oh my god here comes the cultural inconsistency the hong kong prison it's in waste jail pinging i mean okay yeah also um who the hell rides away from a prison on a bike i'm talking about the uh, opening sequence when uh, jet Li escapes from prison he escapes on a bike i mean it's not vietnam guys it's freaking hong kong <laughs> you know like it's just weird. So I mean, I'm that to to go down that road uh, is just really weird. But I'm, I'm just really impressed by rice noodle. I mean, still because Anthony <laughs> yeah, Anderson. Let's must, talk about that for a little bit. <laughs> well, he must be a connoisseur of Chinese cuisine in some way to know to say rice noodles. That was great. I mean, he can't be that racist. <laughs> I, I remember he had he was in one of the subsequent Andre Barkoviak movies, maybe Cradle to a Grave. And now that I think of it. Even if it's not that movie, but him and Tom Arnold are in a movie together, and the entire movie is complete dog poo. 
But the final scene has him and Tom Arnold, probably underneath the credits, just ad-libbing and riffing together. And it's great. It's absolutely great. And they call out like the director. No one knows how to pronounce his name. And, and yeah, regardless if he was cradled to the grave or not, that showed, you know, give them space and comfort and then some magic can happen. So if you take anything away from Cradle to the Grave, if it was that, then, or watch any stretches of it, watch the final final five minutes. After all, everything's great and all the explosions have done their thing. Watch uh, Anthony Anderson and Tom Arnold riff because it's uh, actually quite uh, quite stellar. Well, that film, that I mean, th- it's just one of those things about um, the the need to have a comic relief, the misguided uh, decision to have this annoying comic relief to lighten up a action movie. Well, I'm not sure if it's still a thing now. I guess Kevin Hart now takes that job. Um, it's just really weird to have this these comic actors who are very talented in their own right when they're in their element, but then you fit them into a film where they really don't fit. This film is just one of the most glaring examples of uh, having a comic relief that does in a film that doesn't really need it. And uh, speaking of the leads, though, Ali and um, Alia and Jet Li, I mean, individually, if you look at her, for instance, she looks fairly comfortable. Um, the scene where she verbally confronts her brother who makes a phone call from the store that she works at and the attitude she has towards her father and the family, her defiance and all of that. That's OK. She does okay, considering the material we're, we're going with here. She doesn't look uh, awkward as this sort of singer pushed into um, movies. And uh, I, I enjoy that and some of the interactions between her and Jet Li. But um, if you look at him individually, there are elements here that I found enjoyable. And I could see some choices that they made either for him due to him maybe still learning English. But maybe that it was a choice regardless, because he's not a very verbal lead. And regardless if it was a conscious choice based on his lack of comfort in English or not, sometimes he's he can be entertaining navigating his environments, making observations as he plays detective, but also, uh, you know, gets out of situations. I mean, what, the one laugh I had in the movie is when he exits the scene after probably having beat up Anthony Anderson for the first or second time. And he exits the scene by taking one of the cars uh, of uh, of the gang. And he says like something like, I love American cars, a sweet car. And those were individual sort of fun moments. But then when you connect it to the fact that Jet Li's character has a personal vendetta, then you realize that the light and dark over light and violent, it doesn't fit within the sort of arc of his character either. I don't know if it's maybe it's it's suitably busy uh, and may, I, meaning that many movies have done these things where it's funny, a little bit personal, martial arts. That, that, that's a formula that's doable, but I, I, I don't think it uh, works here. And when so little of the action is actually memorable, I think the only piece of action that I think is memorable is Jet Li's uh, uh, scene with the the fire hose where he, when he twirls that about a little bit which requires some physical choreography and not enhanced Matrix-style choreography. It's after he's um, they've cut off the water supply and he can just use it as a weapon by that point. That's the only piece of action that I felt was a little bit true to the Hong Kong style and wasn't as uh, influenced by producer, director and American production movie company uh, calling the shots. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad he got a chance to do more movies, but 
he hasn't truly, he, you know, he doesn't truly flourish here. And Hollywood wasn't the place for him to truly flourish. It was Europe that was the place for him to start flourish as an actor, I think. Because I, I don't know what you think of Danny Vidago Unleashed, but I really like that. And it took going back to the sort of, not going back, but going to the Luc Besson camp for them to find something that... Um, could work and to be honest if you look at Danny the dog those have such contrasting elements that should not work either uh, but it somehow manages to merge worlds in my opinion and uh, Romeo Must Die is an example where these worlds aren't merged very well but there, there are some acting choices that are enjoyable every now and again from from Jet in my opinion so well, I, mean, I mean come on I mean Luke Besson did more for Jason Statham's career than, than Hollywood did let's face it yeah sure and any general notes on how you think Jet uh, commands the screen, having seen him in Hong Kong movies and uh, being transferred to Hollywood? Is it a natural fit, or do you think uh, this was uh, still him in development in Hollywood? Well, because at the time, Jet Li hadn't proven himself as a dramatic actor. I mean, he was doing, even in Hong Kong, he was doing very trashy movies, you know, like Black Mask, come on. No, 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 don't go down that road. No, just kidding. I know, I know. It's a silly movie. No. It's a silly movie. <laughs> Right. So he wasn't exactly dramatic acting material. So I could understand why Hollywood didn't really know what to do with him because, I mean, they weren't going to they still hadn't had that um, system where they know how to work in a martial arts film into a dramatic film. And Hollywood's supposed to be good at stuff, but it was still very early stages of having Chinese actors in the mainstream at the time. I mean, it's a big thing, though, to have him as a lead actor that uh, belief in him to, um, to to put in front and center, and I'm, I'm sure that was a meaningful thing. Well, this came after Anna the King, right? Yeah, Anna the King, I think, was 99 of the same year. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was still very early on because you had Jackie Chan, and Jackie Chan, they only knew how to put him in. in well, I think Jackie Chan didn't do much. Uh, we, we might have done some Hollywood films at the time. But I mean, I, I thought that Lethal Weapon 4 was actually a very great launching, launching vehicle for Jet in Hollywood. It's just that no one knew at the time knew how to incorporate those things into into Hollywood. And you can say that they still don't know how to do it. I mean, look at Mulan. I mean, I I'm not I haven't seen the film. I don't know what the film is going to be like. But if you I'm not if I'm a betting man, and I'm not, even though I'll be very confident in betting that it's going to have, a, you know, result in a lot of rolling eyes, on, at least on my end of the world. So it's gonna be. Uh, it still takes a long time to try and you know give Chinese actors a proper role in a in a major Hollywood film. It's that Luke Besson knows that they they treasure he treasures getting Jet Li at least into one of his films, and and he wants to give. I guess he knows how to um, give the best actor the best role. I mean, look at Jason Statham. He was great for the Transporter. He's not a not much of an actor. And Corey was on the Transporter as well, so they, they brought him into the. Yeah, exactly. But so somehow, somehow knew how to use Statham, just like somehow he knew how to use Jet Li and break him out of the comfort zone. So, so it's all about having that right talent in the right place at the right time. And Hollywood, Joe Silver, even though he's great for giving Jet a chance, he just maybe wasn't the right man. I don't really have any notes other, other than asking you, do you have any, any action beats from Corey and Jet that actually you think work in this American movie? Was it all sort of... Uh problematic all the way through for you well i like the the fire hydrant thing um that whole warehouse fight 
otherwise um except when he does the matrix 360 and kicks all the bad guys in the face yes that was weird that was weird and then the money shot is also weird where russell ron and him does that that fly kick thing also weird but um otherwise there's nothing really that memorable this i mean director comes because he's a cinematographer right so he does come up with a couple of cool money money shot trailer worthy money shots including that um where a certain character is falling off um his apartment and it's uh it's again that's a very trailer money shot but otherwise i don't see uh and also of course it's jet lee's first leading film in hollywood otherwise I don't see much redeeming value in this film, and it really ages. I mean, what nineteen years? And yeah, it definitely feels a bit very much direct to video at this point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just a minor note, just because I I just saw it in my notes. Uh, out of all cameos to come come into this movie that you didn't expect, you see Francois Yip as the bike rider assassin. She was in Rumble in the Bronx with Jackie and uh, done a few Hong Kong movies as well. And uh, she's uh, she's either American or Canadian, so uh, she so she speaks um, she speaks English. But uh, that was one of those. Hey, I recognize her. She's she has a fight scene with uh, Jet Li and Aaliyah. And okay, that's now over. Over. I've it's not a classic, but I've made a note that I recognize the actress. That's all I can give it. <laughs> this movie, I recognize someone. And also, I, I I mean, it's cute and it's not overused, but that whole. Uh, Street Fighter inspired uh, type of shots where where you see uh, the bones break from within these X-ray shots. I mean, they, he used it twice, I think, or three times. So it's, I guess, it's cute to use in in the final fight and earlier in the fight. But it's one of those moments. Well, it stutters the movie, including those brief moments. Th- those moments makes the movie stutter rather than feel like this cohesive whole. I mean, they only last a few seconds, those moments. And it's not like every fight scene has this Street Fighter X-ray type of moments. So, so. But it was better in the Sunny Chiba movie. And that's uh, that's an old movie with no CGI. There is that. Uh, but anyway, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll um, uh, move on to availability unless you have any other notes, uh, Kevin. No, I, I, I'm done with this film. <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. It wasn't this massively entertaining um uh, revisit but um, i'm glad to have logged some notes on it and uh, that's that's uh, that's all i need so uh, i just needed to confirm to myself that hey delroy lindo is good in anything he does and uh, that includes um, includes this movie so uh he's even in broken arrow in one of those like man i wish i wish he was in it more and they they, they, they kill him off um, in a helicopter crash i think uh but but still for his brief like a um, military type of role delroy lindo is uh, is great at what he does so so even if you didn't like Broken Arrow, there's, there's a piece of Delroy Lindo in there for, for everyone to enjoy. And as for availability, uh, Romeo Must Die has stayed in circulation. And you, you can get it on DVD, Blu-ray and digital pretty much everywhere. So uh, there's, no, um, there's no shortage of, uh, of discs and uh, streaming options and uh, what have you. I opted for a, uh, for a DVD just for the convenience of um, sharing the movie with, uh, with Kevin. But um, uh, I, I saw it on sale on iTunes uh, this week. So, so you can always get it. At any rate, we're going to take a music break and maybe play some of the quirky composed score for for election I'd, I'd forgotten how i don't know what the word is but I, i'd forgotten the score of election and how it stood out uh, uh, versus my first viewing many many years ago so it was a nice surprise uh, to hear election as well uh, too and we're gonna play some music from it and we'll be back after it to review johnny toe's election 
And welcome back, and uh, now it's finally time to talk an actual Hong Kong movie. Uh, we chose to do the West screen first, but uh, this is our East screen, so to say, in honor of our co-host here. And it's Election from 2005. It seemed like yesterday that I picked up Election on DVD, and uh, I was following it and wanted, looking forward to its release. And now it's... 14 years old or whatever so there it is time but the plot goes as follows Um, every two years the Wuxing tribe society elects their new chairman the two fighting for the top spot is calm and measured lock played by Simon Yam and loudmouthed hot-headed Big D, played by Tony Leung Kafai. Despite uh, money-switching hands to buy votes, uh, Uncle Teng, played by Wong Tin Lam, uh, which is Wong Jing's uh, father, and uh, his uh, fellow uh, senior members, they vote lock in as the new chairman. However, the leadership baton passed on from one chairman to another is on the loose, and it's clear Big D isn't giving up without a fight. And uh, he even um, uh, contemplates forming a new triad society in his, uh, uh, as a fighting strategy. So that's the triad set up for Johnny Toe's election. And this is a story that spans two movies uh, released in 2005 and 2006. And we, we saw quite an uh, iconic poster design of, the, um, of this picture early on, which seemed like it was a few dozen characters all showing or displaying specific triad culture hand signs that that poster by the way is, is banned actually it's a banned design as in like it they couldn't use it for publicity because it's illegal to show triad hand signs but but, it, but okay so it may, maybe it got out online but it wasn't part of the promotional campaign in print and things like that yeah it can't be yeah it can't be yeah yeah, yeah. But, but we remember seeing it and it was like, wow, that, that's that's really iconic. And it seemed like, and this is my ignorance talking, and that's why I'm going to ask you, it seemed like Johnny Toe and Milky Way Image were very comfortable saying, we're not going to play nice, and we're going to accept the adults-only category-free rating for Hong Kong release, because triad content could also be ground for a category-free release, meaning you have to be 18 and over to, to watch this movie. But having said that, would art be enough for the movie to get the highest rating, or do you think this got the rating based on triad content and some of the ending violence that goes on forever? Well, no, it's very specific. Um, the scene got the category-free rating because of the... I don't think it's a very spoiler. It's the um, the triad induction scene, the swearing scene, because that's an actual triad swearing in ceremony, or, that, or they're very close to how to do it. So to to depict real triad ceremony automatically, it's your category three in Hong Kong. Because they didn't do what Young and Dangerous did, where they all like slice their fingers or just sit in front of uh, the altar and do a little tiny uh, chant and bow. Like, this was more extensive. Uh, yeah. Even though Johnny Toe talked of the fact that we could have shot that for two hours if we wanted to go for realism, but we're making a movie here, we can't do it for two hours or even two minutes. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. So even showing that because that is actually I think taken from because you know um uh Yao Dai Hoi the, his brother and he's been in news lately because well protests and everything um he was his brother is um a, a a officer in the hong kong police force and you know he's a very i'm sure he's been a consultant on many of these things uh, many of these triad and cop films that that they've done so yeah they i think they took some um and of course johnny toe said himself that he his family had actual connections to the triad so it's like a real they use real triad ceremony and that is specifically the reason why the film got because otherwise the, the, the violence is really mostly category to be 
rated stuff. I mean, it's R-rated stuff, but it's not like, you know, there's no blood, really. Not much blood. So it, it, it could have easily gotten the 2B if he had cut that sequence. But, but Johnny Toe is saying we're not going to do that because there's a film about... I mean, the film, the, the film's Chinese title is triad so they're not gonna take out they're not gonna take out the 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 the, the, the actual triad ceremony just to appease some censors and i mean maybe they, they felt they were in a sweet spot there anyway so taking a category of re-rating wasn't the biggest risk milk away took in 2005 uh, maybe a few years earlier when they were struggling to conjure up hits maybe it would have been uh, foolish to aim for a a category free rating but uh by now they, they they had hits where with that typical johnny toe stamp and also hits making romantic comedies uh, but uh maybe 2005 was uh they were in a more comfortable place to just say f you we're, yeah. we're gonna do it it's gonna be 18 plus <laughs> Well, that was Milky Way, Milky Way Images MO. Um, they would, there would be a balance between Johnny Toad doing films for money, which is like the romantic comedy stuff, even though, yes, his signature is in it and he never really late. He's never lazy. I mean, Johnny, you can never accuse Johnny Toad being lazy. There's a man who did like two, three movies a year, but it was always, you know, okay, let's, let's um, make some capital with those big hits and then we can, I can do the films that I want to do that those films that take two, three years to shoot or the really passion projects and election was one of his passion projects. For sure. I, I remember that it was really cool when they finally got that mixture right when seemingly when he made running out of time it wasn't this hugely commercial, easily slotted into a particular template uh, type of movie. It was it, it was part of his sort of evolving quirky voice, but it had but it was commercially viable as it turned out. You know, it had Andy Lau of course, but it was uh, it had a light tone that was that, that was that was him. That, that was uh, the Milky Way sort of quirky humor brand was being built, and that included running out of time. Uh, so, so it was really cool that they, they they found that at the end of the nineties or beginning of the millennium, and uh, and uh, rode that wave. Um, and uh, still, I, I don't know how how much Milky Way mixes genres and moods nowadays. I, I'm too out of touch with uh, with the output, to be honest. So. Well, you're talking to the man who's done three Milky Way films already, so I know what's. I mean, yeah, and of course, I my myself, I can't talk about those films that haven't come out yet, of course. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've been. I mean, of course, I'm a huge follower of Milky Way's films, and Johnny Toe has always been very has a very unique voice, and 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 he's always been about the eccentric humor, even in the most serious films. And um, yes, it's a bit safer now because of the Chinese market and they have to worry about uh, box office and things like that. But I think that quirky voice is still very much there in, um, yeah, in, in John, I think he's still very much going for that sort of quirky humor and something making something very unique voice. I'm jumping the gun, but otherwise I'm going to forget about it because I haven't put it in my notes. Uh, do you know does anyone know if election free is even coming out or is it just simply well maybe it's coming out now it's 2020 now it's 2022 now it's 2028 maybe no no don't hold your breath i mean (laughs) i'm not longing for it necessarily i remember yeah two movies that was all right yeah, it doesn't need. I don't think this needs a third film. And also, Johnny has a company to run. He's for a while they were actually publicly listed that company. I mean, now it's not because now it's. But now also because their um, owner essentially is a Chinese company, Hyrule. And this is pretty much known fact. It's not like I'm giving any insider secret here. I mean, they have a very close relationship with this company, Hyrule. They bankrolled a, a couple of um, last films, so um, it's not a big secret. And Johnny. 
you know, Milky Way is a running, it's an operating office that has a big staff every day. I've been up there many times, and and they have a pretty huge staff to keep to feed. So um, I don't know if Johnny's ready to risk everything to make election free, and also Johnny's not the type to just kickstart a film without. Uh, well, he does. He doesn't film a script, so I mean, I'm not gonna say like he won't shoot a film without a script, but he, you know, it's not like he's gonna. He'll make a film when he wants to, and at the moment, it doesn't seem like it. Just seems like some a pipe dream at the most. Yes, I'm sure he has a nice. So many years on, then you really sh- shouldn't hold on to election just because you remember that he made election. I mean, it makes as much yeah. sense as me saying, like, I'm s- still waiting for the enigmatic case, too. <laughs> you know, his very first movie from 1980. Still, it's gotta happen someday. Make it for me. I'm um, just like this, like when uh, Stephen Chow promised that, oh, um, I'm thinking about making Kung Fu Hustle 2, and then the internet blew up. It's like, no, I mean, Kung Fu Hustle 2 is about has much uh, has much chance happening as Election 3. It's just like pipe dreams that people bring up in interviews and they're forced to talk about it and they're always going to say, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm I'm sorry. Until the, move, the day that the movie actually is in the cinema, it's not happening. That's that's what I think. And you're not going to get Stephen Chow in it anyway. Uh, I would yeah, exactly. assume. Stephen so. like me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the most they would do is new Kung Fu Hustle, which as we all saw from New King of Comedy is not going to be the same thing. But uh, going back to the election in uh, 2005, the Hong Kong box office uh, was fairly strong. Uh, my research indicated that it um, uh, grossed about 16 million Hong Kong dollars, and it wasn't the top movie of the, uh, of the year. It was the fourth highest grossing local film, behind the likes of classics, such as Initial D. I saw 20 minutes of Initial D, and then I couldn't take it anymore, Kevin. Nope, not for me. <laughs> Nope, nope, not a great film. No, no. Obviously, I can't uh, pass any proper judgment on the film, but it was like, nope, not for me. The Infernal Affairs guys, they're pretty good, but this is not the movie to showcase that. So I skipped that one. I never saw The Myth either, but uh, uh, that was uh, one of the high, uh, top grossers. And also the Andy Lau movie, Wait Till You're Older, was uh, above uh, election in terms, of, uh, in terms of box office that year. But that that number is actually a big deal because it's a category free film for only adult audience. I mean, just before Less Caution. I mean, Less Caution came out in two thousand eight, and that made forty mil. Really much on the back on on the back of you know the, all that stuff about Tony Lund's sex scenes. Just like Election actually wrote on the tail of the controversy. You know, the, the whole it was a huge deal. The film that depicted actual triad ceremony. It was always in the news, and of course it was in Cannes, and and um, Johnny Toe was doing a gangster movie, and it was a um, it was a big deal for at least people who follow that, you know, who bought in on the controversy. So it's, you know, making that kind of money on a category free rating is a huge deal back in the day. That's a very good point indeed. And uh, its popularity, um, uh, you know, struck a chord with the film awards jurists uh, as well. Because uh, by the time Hong Kong Film Awards came around that year, election won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Tony Leung Kafai's performance and also Best Screenplay. So uh, that was... Uh, you know, quite a slam dunk, uh, I suppose. At the Taiwan Golden Horse Awards, it was widely nominated, but the screenplay and sound effects were, so to say, the only awards it got. Uh, obviously, it, uh, it, it's an honor to to get screenplay, you know, in multiple places. Uh, uh, the Hong Kong Film Critics Society Awards concluded it was the best film, and Johnny Toad that year's best director as well. 
in an, in the interview on the DVD, uh, Johnny Toe spoke a little about the inspiration and the genesis of the project. Uh, first, detailing that the Tribe Society is part of the DNA of Hong Kong society. I mean, Johnny Toe, as you talked of, Kevin, he, he had uncles who were connected to the Tribe Society, and you didn't need to be high class to have connections to the Tribe Society. You, even lower class could. And it all has historical significance going back hundreds of years anyway. So there's that to present. Uh, but also, you know, to partly depict, and I think the second movie goes into this more, partly depict the position of the Triad Society after that 1997 handover, how they would adopt to Chinese rule. And uh, it was never meant to truly exist on its own, uh, but but rather to be a two-part picture where, where the full picture would form uh, together once you saw election two. You know, it, it, went, it went into more subtext, I suppose. You know, where can the Triad Society go go from 1997 and onwards when policies change and all of that so it was inevitable in, in his eyes that you would mirror sort of hong kong and the issue of 1997 in these uh, two movies and uh, my, my memory is boss of election two other than it was essentially now a lewis Koo movie he's in this movie uh, as merely a supporting actor and uh, election two was lewis's movie but if i remember correctly kevin that one dealt a little bit more with mainland China, uh, regardless if you thought it was successfully dealing with it or not. Or, or what do you remember about Long of, the, um, of Election 2? Yeah, I mean, the first film, one line pretty much sum up the first film, right? David uh, David Chang's character saying, yeah, the, the triads have had democracy longer than Hong Kong has. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that film was about the state of democracy in Hong Kong. And it was an irony, it was very much ironic. Um, and in the second film, um, go straight at China. They were talking about. There's a line I think in the film that has been used quite often because now this year at least um, people saw and, and want to throw away, you know, to throw conspiracy theories around that the triads and the police are working together. It's talked about this year uh, because of certain things that happened during the this whole movement that's happening right now in Hong Kong. There's this whole thing about yeah, triad members are actually quite patri- patriotic. You know, um, that they're very patriotic and they're, you know, the film also mentions this whole history of the triads, um, that they were actually initially a band of brothers uh, fighting against the Manchurian invaders, wasn't it? I think that's what the film says. So, yes, that's the whole idea is that, yeah, the triads are actually quite patriotic people. And then the second film continue back that idea that, yes, but now being patriotic means what does it mean to be patriotic? It means that so uh what what they said in the second film i don't want to spoil the second film yes it is essentially is johnny toe's opus to talk about post handover hong kong which is why he keeps throwing around election three because election three maybe will be his way of dealing with current hong kong 20 years after the handover and it would be a very very bleak picture that's what election is about and i think that's why election the two election films are really maybe johnny toe's most ambitious film because they talk about such huge issues um in this sort of crime film it's very much the way that foreigners watch tri- uh, election it's very much i guess kind of how right now hong Kongers watch irishman because i listened to this uh, hong kong podcast about how they watch the irishman they don't get the the huge historical context of that story in american history um, it's talking about the mob and the mob's role in 1960s America, just in a way that election is talking about bigger picture. It's about the role of crime in the crime family in Hong Kong society, but it's it using this crime story to talk about the state of Hong Kong. 
And to really understand Johnny Toe's ambition, really have to kind of understand the in and outs of Hong Kong politics and all that stuff in Hong Kong society. And I think that's the brilliance of the film for a Hong Kong audience. But of course, at this, but of course, foreigners watching this film, they would just think, "Oh, is Johnny Toe doing a really great gangster movie?" Which is fine. Which is it works in that in that way as well. Yeah, it's it's a good point. It's not this uh, dense. Uh... Uh, local film only for sure and uh, because that's a perspective I have that I, I can get some things and some things based on the interview he did and all of that but c- certainly not the the, the deeper uh, nuances and, and depth that's that's in there and any movie that can play on multiple levels for multiple types of audiences is uh, is doing its job uh, right in some areas uh, that's for sure he chose his di- direction, uh, but but also looked at it historically, uh, and he he wanted these movies to pre- you know re- represent some kind of record of existence by acknowledging what roles triads society have had historically and uh, in current Hong Kong at the time. I suppose whether you like them or their actions or not, you can't deny that they exist, and that's what he wanted to sort of cement here and uh, put on celluloid and uh, and immortalize it. But genre-wise, he felt he needed to differentiate himself and not go down the path of Long Arm of the Law or Better Tomorrow or even Young and Dangerous that was, you know, a few years old uh, or uh, eight or nine years old at the time uh, that had represented a new kind of triad movie, a way more glossy movie, a way more sort of pop star, you know, no consequences type of triad life is fun uh, type of uh, genre picture. And he didn't want to go down those routes. He wanted to make something different and uh, and the, the notion of election the triad election was a new thing to to him in in movies and that was you know a way to differentiate to differentiate himself i suppose uh, to touch upon that as a as a centerpiece of the film and he also talks in the interview about uh, maintaining a quality of film production that is uniquely Hong Kong because they were slipping versus the Korean uh, uh, cinema output. Uh, and, and he felt Hong Kong cinema was starting to u- lose its u- uniqueness. And uh, he wanted to maintain a, that this was a Hong Kong movie that and didn't want to think of any mainland Chinese sort of uh, commercial concerns. And that's different now i suppose uh, but that was his thinking um uh, thinking back then he, he said he was actually criticized or sort of called out for not being stylish enough which is a s- silly critici- <laughs> criticism uh viewers or critics thought uh, that he wasn't reinventing his style enough but he, he didn't feel obligated to change his game he wanted to tell the story in a way that suited audience and his taste he wanted to follow his instinct so he's sort of well that's what you think that's fine but i'm not going to follow your advice <laughs> yeah I, I renew my style when i when i damn well please uh when i when i should and i will and uh, then you'll get a ptu type of movie that looks so distinctly stylish and this doesn't so that's a very silly uh, silly criticism uh, the triad ritual in the film apparently originally lasted 20 minutes but realistically could have taken hours so uh, obviously he needed to trim that down and make it uh, cinematic and not bore his audience I suppose uh, and then uh, I mean it was important to have it there as part of history and culture but one minute or two minutes was enough for that criteria to be fulfilled in his eyes so and uh, working with the actors, uh, Johnny said that he didn't rely on the script word by word, which m- matches what you were saying, Kevin. But he he prides himself on having a thorough knowledge of his characters, so he would teach his actors lines based on based on that. I he he didn't let them necessarily read the script. Uh, he was looking for what was right, a feeling, 
and to, for his actors to follow his direction based on that and that method was not for all of his actors uh we're working with tony lung he that, that, that was smooth he see he seemed to trust tony's choices uh, and let him dictate more of his own acting but when it came to focusing on simon for him to play this calm character that wouldn't give the obvious reaction to events around him that was wasn't apparently as natural for simon so johnny toe had to do some working and finessing for that to come through properly i'm not saying they had a bad working relationship but it was just that okay there's a temperature here that needs to be maintained for the character of Locke, and we can't veer outside of that too much by having him do too much. Uh, there's a time and place for that. And uh, he talked also about uh, working with uh, actor and uh, director and uh, Wong Jing's late father, Wong Tin Lam. And this is cute. Uh, Johnny Toe liked to keep him around on set, uh, to keep him around the crew, because that, that made Wong Tin Lam happier being a veteran director after all. And Johnny didn't mind if Wong Tin Lam's acting wasn't on point necessarily. He didn't want to burden him with that responsibility of remembering everything, you know, exactly. I mean, he was old and uh, he was not a master at remembering dialogue anyway. So you would have to have patience. And, and he did. Uh, he, he gives him a, a meaty, meatier role here than other Milky Way movies. But he still had patience with him. And uh, that's uh, that's nice and respectful to hear. And he did also t- touch upon uh, entering the film into competition at Cannes, which he enjoyed. He, he, he felt humble and honored to be part of that. He said it's the festival of festivals, and it made him very happy to be part of the big film world. Uh, and while he made this movie Hong Kong specific, he always hoped that the movie wouldn't be limited to Hong Kong audiences only, but approachable for the world. And that step included showing it at Cannes and um, that um, type of audience and um, you know I, I remember the movie had a good reputation going from conception making uh, getting into can and then getting you know into cinema and to dvd so it uh, it built up this um, this momentum i think and, and that included uh, uh, sending the movie to can and i think he, he you know he's, he's been to can subsequently but i remember he went to can with movies like Breaking News, even I always thought that was cool that um, that uh, he had that um, presence uh, over here in Europe as well. So let's move over to the movie review, I suppose, and I'm gonna leave uh, leave it to Kevin to deliver his uh, uh, brief opinion of election. I know you said that you're you're in favor of it, but uh, what do you want to say in short about um, about the election? And for for the record, for so the listeners know, does it work on its own, or do you immediately have to jump to election two and watch it? No, I I don't think, and I was watching. I haven't seen it in uh, in a few years, and I was watching it again recently for the show, and it feels like well, I think Johnny said enough with this film that it could stand on its own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Election Two really pushed. I mean, it made sense to include so many big stars as side characters in Election One, but that's really just like a a thing that's not having not nothing to do with the plot itself. It's just a, a business thing, right? It's like an insider thing. But just watching election one, I think Johnny has said enough. I mean, this whole thing about it, it's him about him criticizing, you know, um, systems of democracy and the dark side of democracy. And at, even though it's a film that seems to be glamorizing a triad, but it's not really. I mean, at the end of the, again, I don't want to spoil the film, even though it's a 14 year old film, the end pretty much 
this is this okay this is like made before even johnny gave a crap about china right he, he held out as long as he could oh yeah this wouldn't play in china let's just say that not in Would this not version play in china no of course not no not in any version because it's a film called triad so which it would never make it makes i mean tons of people in china have seen it you know um but not in legal mode but anyway actually no i think it did get released in china huh this is weird. I think one or two films, election films, did somehow in an edit form or in a different title or something did get released in China. But I can't say official because I haven't really looked it up. But yes. Um, but anyway, yeah, the film does seem to be about triads and about how, you know, cool triads are, you know, this whole like, guffin thing in the middle with the dragon baton. But and, and this before um, every Chinese film about triads have to end with the police doing a raid. You know, because now if you do a Chinese a, a, a co-production, every film that includes a triad will have to end with the police saving the day because that's how China wrote. But Johnny's telling you, like, I don't need the police to show up to tell me or to tell my audience that triads are bad, that, you know, these people are all out for themselves and these are all criminals and they're ultimately people without honor. And even, the you know, the most honorable characters don't seem to have honor. So but he does it in his own way without having to pander to censors. But he's still giving this very much cautionary message on in his own way which is uh brilliant so no i i don't think you need election two to make election complete but you get chainsaw violence in election two oh, so there is that. oh he really ups the violence i mean if election one it got the category three because of the uh triad thing election two definitely got the category three because of the violence definitely <laughs> but um anyway um I, I think, yes, it completes Johnny's message as a whole, which is why I said this one was very ambitious, this whole project, because he is saying a lot with two very succinct films. I mean, add it up, it, it's the length of one film. You could make you could make them into a single film. It's just that they're essentially two different stories of two different sets of messages, even though those two messages are tied together. So, no, I always view Election 2 sort of as its own film, even though it's a sequel, but it's really kind of its own film with a different rhythm, different everything. Yeah, it's not... Um open-ended in terms of uh, you know a big confrontation that you don't know how it's gonna uh, turn out uh, they, they end it on a, on a on a dark note a sour note but you can absorb that and wow <laughs> that was a gut punch if you will we won't spoil obviously the ending because we shouldn't uh, i haven't seen it for many years myself I, i've seen it twice um but, but you know 2005 or maybe 2008 so it's been a while and um, I'm more disconnected from the current Hong Kong cinema just because I, I haven't followed it and c- certainly not f- following mainland Chinese cinema and that scene continually m- makes me disconnected in terms of where these makers are now. But regardless, the, the, this first stage of the election saga that talks of, you know, age old traditions, but characters are, you know, that you should respect, but characters are still loud and violent and sometimes absurd it's still an entertaining immersive work from the man he's not trying to do uh, you know as, as we talked of this innovative movie style wise he's not trying to be ptu uh, here or anything or, or plot wise i mean it, it's when you break it down it's a, it's a quite an approachable common genre plot uh, too so you can approach it very very well but he can command a scope frame together with his uh, with his technical crew and uh, his characters in the shadow and his older characters just sitting talking and building the world that way and building events that way he has a command of that 
that aura, that atmosphere, whether it's violent or absurd or played in the shadows and all of that. So that professionalism is really appealing and atmospheric and uh, and and slick, and 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 it's the actual voice of the filmmaker too, which uh, is very nice to see. Even though I, I I can't ever appreciate the entire you know gallery of uh, depth and nuance, but. Um, it really is accomplished and uh, and uh, and approachable and entertaining. And for, for me, I, I've come out of covering a fair amount of the Young and Dangerous movies on, on the podcast. So it was really refreshing to see a Hong Kong movie and Hong Kong audiences find itself back to returning back to the more impactful, harder, violent side of a tribe movie. And the Young and Dangerous movies, they, they can be okay, they can be entertaining, but they're really not impactful as such the spin-offs are better but uh, they they really represented the they were not the gritty triad genre leader for a couple of years uh, i think they were kind of sometimes dullish dishwater really um and, and you know you don't give andrew lau the work of uh, depicting this hard dangerous criminal world where you just get floored by its grit and violence and characters because that's not what he can do he can make young and dangerous and co-direct classics pretty well, <laughs> but that's about it. I'm not a big fan of uh, Andrew Lau, and so it was nice to see. Neither in my, I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're cultural sort of uh, classic touchstones, I suppose. I really enjoyed them because of that. But uh, the, the young and dangerous era, what, what we benefited from it was when either Johnny Toe as producer realized that we can make fun of triads let's make too many ways to be number one and, and have triad rolls upside down that would be great and uh, but but also the young and dangerous world when disconnected from andrew, andrew lau and other directors got to make things then the spin-off started to make that world this uh, plausible critics proof world that was fascinating and then andrew lau came back and made his crap well, remember, uh, Young and Dangerous came out. Actually, it was widely criticized by by conservative groups for glamorizing uh, triad violence and triad lifestyle. And in a way, yes, it came like over a decade later. And of course, triad films have always been the staple of of Hong Kong cinema, at least the last 20, 30 years. But I, but I never felt that watching these Andy Lau, Alex Mann movies back in the day. And when I saw Young and Dangerous 1, I could definitely feel that. They they make this lifestyle come up as very cool. Well, yeah, and Young and Dangerous was dangerous because it was aimed at young audience. You know, if it was a category three film, then it's fine. But it was a category. You know, Hong Kong doesn't have an age restricted um, rating system unless you're category three. So category two, I mean, any kids can actually walk into a Young and Dangerous film, and it had young idols. You know, yeah, I mean, of course, Andy Lau was an idol at the time, but in the eighties, but it didn't aim to be hip and it didn't aim so specifically at the young audience as the way that young and dangerous did and election i'm not saying is a direct response to it no i don't think so either no no of course it's not but you know a couple of years there when young and dangerous really dominated the pop culture landscape and of course every copycat that came out there tried to copy young and dangerous and in a way johnny toe kind of wanted to um Tune the way that Scorsese now makes Irishman sort of in a, as a response to his own earlier gangster films. I mean, Johnny Toe is just as guilty as, you know, glamorizing that triad lifestyle in some of his earlier triad films. So in a way, tri- uh, election is also kind of a response to that as well. And, and it really never came off as uh, 
having this agenda either of, uh, as you said, responding to an earlier trend that did glamorize it, or it never veered into that dangerous territory itself, especially not after you watched the film, where it felt like, well, they have their set rules and regulations, and that feels kind of appealing. It simply does not, because they're, they're, it's a backstabbing type of world, you know, even though they, mm-hmm. they, they talk of ancient traditions, which is, I guess, the satire and the irony in a way here. Uh, a, l- a little fast question, because he's not in it a lot, but is it weird to look back at Nick Chung in this movie, knowing that he was only a few years out of his sort of comedic p- persona, then he made this? And now he's taking creative control of his work and he's more acclaimed as dramatic actor. Is it weird to think back on, oh yeah, that guy was a comedy actor. This is weird. Yeah, that was kind of the beginning of seeing Nick Chern as a, as a serious actor. Uh, that was him doing, I think, his first Top Guy role. But of course, he was a TV actor before that. And, you know, when you do TV, you do a big mix of both comic relief and serious roles. Uh, even though he wasn't known because it was ATV, not TVB, which is just like, like the smaller network. Um yeah, I think that was um, a very creative use of Nick Chern. And, um, because now you're watching, you're like, why did he use Nick Chern? He was a huge star. But actually, at the time, he wasn't. He was doing leading roles. But like you said, he was doing very much comedic roles. But yeah, Johnny Toe was like, let's make him a tough guy. And it worked. Yeah, he has a non-verbal role almost, where, where he gets to display what kind of frequencies these tried characters, whether they're low on the totem pole or not, the, the lengths they can go to uh they're, they're they're on and intense and it's not a comedic you know purely comedic scene but it's kind of funny that nick chung eats a spoon to <laughs> prove to prove a point silently that i can and i will you know like cr- crushes a bit of porcelain and then chews it <laughs> and then takes a little bit more even when he doesn't need to eat more he just finishes off the spoon that he uh, that he crushed a little bit because you gotta finish your meal properly. Yeah, and, and that and that actually that character the way that ca- that character arc if you could call it an arc is again that response that Johnny Toe is doing talking about because you know in those typical triad films it's always about the toughest guy wins right the guy who's know how to fight the, the and and in a way that the Nick Chern character is. Um, a parody of that because at the even at the end of the second film at the end he, at the end of the day he's just a tough guy at the end the educated guy the one who who has a scheme in his mind who doesn't do any real fighting himself he's the one that that wins out at the end so it's it very much uh johnny tobe telling you know the young and dangerous fans like guys wearing a leather jacket and hanging out in the streets of Causeway Bay and you know taking a chopper and fighting people doesn't make you a powerful guy uh, even in whether you're in a triad world or anywhere and it's a, he, he's got a nice physique for the role too he's not buffed up for it he's, he looks um, kind of skinny but it's more powerful yeah. than you think and it's more uh, he's got resilience like you read about it's a nice mix of uh, you know quite non-verbal and bringing that kind of physique to a role. I, I thought that stood out. But w- when you break it down, they, it, it's all turf wars. You know, they talk about one group has taken over clubs and territories, and characters arguing that you know they should be elected so we can strike back and expand. So it, it, it it's like this little bit of young and dangerous familiarity that they, this is what they're dealing with. Uh, it's not that they're different, but they're bringing it in. They're, you know, they're dealing more with the uh, with the uh, with the elders of the society trying to establish calm and democracy and uh, doing it the right way. And yet, 
it's as violent and uh, uh, you know betrayal and twists gonna happen anyway regardless if you're one of the elders or if you're you're a big d kind of character or that that could be might as well have been like this ugly quan character from from young and dangerous is that kind of loose loudmouth cannon violence 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 and it, it's it's recognizable is my point that uh, it hasn't changed that much the, their prior priorities are the same despite their dressing it up in this classy democracy the democratic process that is electing a new triad chairman well we'll talk about the sort of genre influences that election left behind there's a scene in a film uh in the film um in which sami yam is driving down the street and is talking about these figures you know like oh this Kong has 200 nightclubs and this many this this number all these numbers that speech has directly influenced the way that these cop films and triad films are written because really? um what was it one night in Moncock, which came out a few years later, had the exact same speech by um one of the characters. You know, this Moncock, and we have this many, and then you would see it again in a couple of you know here and there cop and tribe movies. You walk into like a neighborhood, and the best way is like to to establish a guy how much he how well he knows that neighborhood. He would just start counting off numbers, and I think that was because of that speech in the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think sometimes. Uh, a particular type of dialogue would catch on like that, uh, or, or you don't know sometimes what will uh, catch on and what will uh, resonate and create ripples. I suppose uh, uh, that's very cool. Do 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 you like his atmosphere where he where he dresses sort of the frame and obviously working with his cin- cinematographer again, uh, Cheng Siu Kung. Do, do 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 you like the atmosphere where he 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 shoots his dialogue scenes with older characters, often in shadows, in smoke and talking talking it out and and seemingly being the puppet masters of this uh, world and trying to control the world they're, they're just simply sitting having tea and talking it out and making decisions but he if any style is present is that he he kind of shoots it in um, with uh, a lack of clarity be just it's uh, it's dark and smoky a lot of the time do you like that stuff at all well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, again, becomes sort of the MO of Johnny Toe's cinematography. He uses these certain type of lens, and he was still shooting on film until uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2, which was only a few years ago. So he was, while, you know, that whole digital revolution is happening, he, Johnny Toe kept shooting on film, and that sort of degrades, I hate to say it, 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 he uses these old lens that sort of degrades the picture a little bit. So even um, back in 2005, the film looked a bit, odd like a bit off because of these um smokes and the lights and the shadowy effects that he uses but i you know there's that saying you know war is old man talking and young men dying and i think the film really um epitomizes that that phrase yes in, in fact the big scene where the elders sit around a room talk while wanting lam the elder the most elder just pours tea while everyone's talking out and all he has to do is say two lines to tell everyone to like put their get their sh- can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just you know, he just uses two line tell everyone get your shit together. You know, it's a very powerful moment, and he's being very kind to Wang Tin Lam, the performer, but actually making it a crucial character trait that he he is there for a purpose. He's not there as the clown who, yeah. who serves tea. He the the serving of the tea serves as a period to the talk we just had yes. the decision we just yes. made so it's rather clever like I'm, I'm not gonna burden you with lines but you're gonna be super important in my movie well because wanting lam wanting lam is johnny toe's mentor uh back in the tv days right on 
yeah, so so every time he gets um well when when Wantinon was still around and he he would get Wantinon to play these small but super important roles because that's how much respect Johnny Toes has for for Wantinon. You can have him sit down a lot, and uh, I guess the most physical strain he placed on him was that he had to hold up his trousers for a bit when they were in the jail because they they took their belts away from him. So, <laughs> yeah. But and, and speaking of that, this movie is uh, is not as apparent with the quirky humor. Some of it is apparent, but it keeps it a little bit of a down low. The absurdism uh, of uh, when characters cross paths. When you know, and they inflict violence upon each other, but in reality, a phone call changes that. Then now we shouldn't inflict violence upon each other because we're kind of on the same side. That's as broad as it gets. But Johnny still keeps it. He's not as um, apparent with his silly stuff here. The, only the, the the jiggle scene, I guess, is the, the the most clowny scene of it all. When when the prostitute is jumping up and down. But uh, otherwise, when we, if you remember the scene with Gordon Lamb and Lam Tzut, where you know he beats him and beats him, and Lamb just keeps on saying these philosophical f- philosophical quotes about because he's super righteous. That's the uh, oath. That's the oath of the triad of the triad member. Well, not the official oath, but yeah, yeah, he's saying all these oaths. And, and, yeah. he, and he and he sticks to this, and Gordon Lamb keeps on beating him because he should. That's his task. Then he gets a phone call. And now I can't do that anymore. Sorry, man. Yet it's not as broad as some of the stuff he sometimes does in movies, which I greatly enjoy. But it, it, it's a little bit downplayed. Uh, it's not always apparent that what we're watching is kind of absurd. And I appreciated that. that you can, you need to watch it a little bit more. I think it's, uh, yeah, that was kind of quirky, wasn't it? Cool. Well, the subtitles. I, I, here we go. Okay, here's where I get all professional. But I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I'm watching it just with English subtitles because I always watch it with Chinese subtitles. Um, and of course, I know Cantonese fluently. The subtitles are accurate. Okay, in terms of getting across the message of the lines, Johnny told writing. Um, no matter is Yao Nai Hoi or Yip Tim Sing or especially Wai Ka Fai, there's a certain rhythm in the films in his writing in the lines and a certain tone and I'm, not, I'm not saying it's mammoth or anything but it's a very um it's a very canton i'm not saying a very cantonese thing but canton is a very verbose language you know mm-hmm. it has it packs a lot of words in very short time and everyone speaks too fast and one short line can pack a lot of meaning and yes the the subtitles have to be english don't have to be simplified so it gets the message across. It's accurate. There's nothing that's misleading. But I don't think it really captures... I'm not saying the dialogue is brilliant. Like I said, it's not like Sorkin or Mamet in that stylized way. But it doesn't capture the rhythm of the dialogue or the attitude of the characters, of certain characters. So so if you're watching it, that's why one best screenplay. I mean, yes, of course, the structure of this plot and the whole story is great. The twists are great. Some of the humor stuff is great. But it, it's also partly because it feels so lived in. You know, these guys are the way they talk. And like I said, it's not brilliant, Tony winning writing or anything, but it is very lived in. It's um, it never feels forced. And the tone of dialogue, it's smart in that colloquial way. Yeah. So that that kind of very verbal sly i wouldn't say wit but there's a certain crudeness to it that's kind of humorous and that feels very um local and it's very colloquial it's not quite carried across in the english subtitles which is 
and we might as well touch upon uh, the actors a little bit because uh, we've got huge performance contrasts here by choice with Simon Yamslock being calm no, not mellow but he's calm and he absorbs things and he uh, he that, that's how he operates in this world uh, this is how he navigates it while Big D Tony Lung's character is um, comfortable and has decided that I'm, I'm I'm the big character I'm the shouty character I'm I'm irrational but I'm violently effective which is also familiar genre type of stuff that's always more the more effective when when it's done better obviously and uh, and and I think looking at that so to say simplicity alone having one calm class A actor and one loud and over the top class A actor I think Johnny has made two wise choices here and those frequencies that they perform uh, perform at I, I think they 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 make sense and uh, yet, yet Tony for instance he, he doesn't go off the reservation for me I think uh, he's a lot of fun adopting that persona because uh, we've seen that persona so much and it's kind of genre comfort fodder at the same time uh, I think those you know our actors could have done it I suppose but I really like the choices of those two actors and those two particular frequencies and by the end you get a pre- an, an appreciation for for it a whole lot more but we won't, uh, we won't we won't spoil it obviously have you wondered what would happen if the rose switched i mean this is actually just now you talking about it's the first time i thought about it and they actually both actors have done both sides of this acting i mean tony could simon tony yam has gone off yeah. the reservation in category three movies like you read about whether dr lamb or a run and kill so he he can do it but yeah maybe i don't know it's hard for me to see for some reason new millennium simon yam going as far but of course i know i can because he's a terrific actor and and tony can dial it down like you read about and be be edgy in his own way so i think uh, mm-hmm. i think that that would be very cool do you think he kept it tony for instance do you think he kept it within the, the range because a character like that can be over the top and uh, not be effective uh, for a particular tribe movie. So do, do you think he kept it within the range and Simon Yam did in his, in his own way as well and therefore the contrasts made sense for the movie? Yeah, I mean, they don't call him Big Tony for nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So Big Tony goes big. I mean, yeah, he and he's very much... It's hard to imagine switching the roles now, but I does he swear a lot, by the way, in Cantonese, so they keep the the cursing to uh, to uh, to a minimum. Because in triad movies, sometimes they even bleeped out uh, audio as the triad characters just ranted and all of that. No, Johnny Toe movies never use real like category three verbi worthy curse words. In fact, that was still a time when when even one single utterance of the four sort of banned words automatically gets you a category three. But until Paho Chan sort of changed things with his films, um, he sort of pushed the censorship a little bit. Um, and now it's much more um, lenient in terms of uh, getting a non-category three rating with those curse words. But back in the day, no, you still can't do it. So I think they weren't expecting, they weren't making a, they weren't out to make a category three film. They were out to make a commercial film. And in fact, to this day, Johnny Toe films have, I have. I don't remember hearing a single utterance of those banned words in a Johnny Toe film to this day. Even though, even though Johnny Toe uses them all the time on set. By the way, this is famous. He's famous for this cigar in his um, mouth and just cursing at his actors. Like, act more. Act bigger. Damn it! 
no, I was cursing everyone, right? So Johnny Toe is that kind of director. So yeah, it's ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Toe. In fact, you could even say Tony might be channeling Johnny Toe in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say for sure. I can't say for sure. I've not seen Johnny Toe on set. I can't say for sure. But but you know, from what you know, the the her fruit of grapevine kind of thing. You know? is, is that a funny role? The way Big D is depicted, or, or because again, uh, I, I think you obviously will have a greater appreciation the way he conducts himself speaking Cantonese which which I can't appreciate so is that a funny role or is it still like edgy to a degree well no it's loud brash but the thing is by the time by that time we've seen ugly Quan, we've seen so many over-the-top triad characters so it's not like Tony was bringing anything new to it but he his his persona I mean the biggest thing that he does is you know kicking it, more physical than actual verbal verbal wise it's nothing like it's explosive and say ugly Quan and young and dangerous, but you know, it's still very fun to watch. I mean, the thing is big Tony going big is always fun to watch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the, um, the this is non-spoiler, but, uh, the scene at the end where, where, where two characters, they come to a conclusion in terms of what they're going to uh, do together, how they're going to cooperate together. And the way he like, yes, that's it. That's what they're going to do. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I th- That gets through to me. And Simon Yan's character in that case, he doesn't react with him in that regard. Like mm-hmm. Big D can't pull in other characters with that uh, with that energy <laughs> as such. Mm-hmm. He's his own. Mm-hmm. He's his own uh, energy, whether rational or irrational. It's worth saying also that it's not a slam bang, fast paced movie with uh, you know whip pans and audio visual cues and uh, this anxious commercial movie or anything. It's a slow cooker, but it it builds and builds very well. Where where it does have sort of a valid were the edge the way it uh, the, the the way it uh, conducts itself it's like a static quieter that's obviously a johnny toe staple too these little peaks of edge and pursuit and chases and violence while not graphic are like an interesting way to increase the pulse of the movie there so it, it's controlled without being uh, and it's not anxious to throw violence at us and throw uh you know things at us to make mm-hmm. to make us notice to make us uh, you know wake up or anything but but it's not this slow cook away it's boring or anything it just sort of makes sense that the increase the pulse here no i mean it's a very it's a very economical film it's a hundred minutes but with so many characters in fact the first time i watched it um 2005, 2005 right so i was like 21 i i and i couldn't capture i couldn't get a hold of the plot I couldn't understand what all these characters are doing, who, what their relationship was. I mean, now and watch it is fine. I mean, I've, in in a way, your your cinematic language and your my grip on plot has become a lot better. My yeah, so now I get it. But back in the day, I was it was moving to me. I thought it moved too fast. I had no idea who these people were, and there's so many things happening. It it, it gets t- a tiny bit complicated uh, by the time that there's that chase across uh, various locations in the mainland i had to look up a plot just to make, okay gordon lamb and lamb suit okay also and then okay and then they're connected to okay got it got it so i just had to do a little bit of reading up on but it's not uh, dense as such uh, in reality so it probably says more about me i can't pay attention and i'm super stupid so so i really don't have anything other to say uh, other than i suppose it's going to be interesting to watch election two again to make a full determination for the sort of full character arcs of characters that don't appear as much in this movie mainly lewis Koo, who is uh it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination but he doesn't have a designated 
pure obvious purpose in this one. He, he he is a supporting actor, but if my memory is correct, it was you know he was the lead actor or second lead after after. Uh, I don't know, even want to say who <laughs> in, in, in the second movie, and and, and I suppose uh, you know, as I said, n- nothing against him, but clearly he has a purpose, uh, or rather, we realized by election two that he has a greater purpose than just this one uh, movie. He's not uh, he's not like this glorified cameo for election or anything. He has a greater purpose, and I think uh, you know he was part of why I felt positive about election two. I'm sure, but. Uh, uh, my other memories of Election 2, as I said, Chainsaws and Mark Cheng Resurgence, because I love Mark Cheng. <laughs> like, it was so nice to see him because he's done so many vile ca- other category free movies, you know, Rape by an Angel, Peeping Tom, and all of those movies, and Chinese Torture Chamber Story 2. So it was nice to see, n- nice to see you know, uh, he's aged gracefully, and Johnny Toe put Mark Cheng in a movie. Uh, that was nice with Election 2. Otherwise, a lot is forgotten, so it's, it's going to be nice to venture into that story again, knowing the thread that started in uh, Election 1, even though, I, as you said, it, it wouldn't be unacceptable if we never got anything else out of this story, I suppose. Uh, it uh, th- Things are left in the air by the end, but I wouldn't feel peeved about that, because sometimes movies just pull the rug uh, from underneath you and you're going to have to deal with it. And election does that to a degree, but still, uh, as you talked about, forms its talking points and thesis or whatever without uh, us feeling like, well, that was 50%, so give us the rest of the 50% and then then we can go home. So I never felt that, but uh, it's going to be fun to rewatch it uh, regardless. So uh, that's the end of my notes. So anything else you want to say about uh, this one? No, I mean, it's about as ambitious and brilliant as Johnny Toe gets. I mean, it's one of his best films and one of his most um, easily to easy to revisit films. In fact, you know, you could watch them, pick up new things. And even now you could just sort of go along with the plot and enjoy all these character dynamics and and everything. And the atmosphere is such a great film to revisit. Um, and it's one of those films that I could just watch over and over again over the years, I think. And I think you'll live on that way. I think it's one of Johnny Toe's greatest films. I, I'm, I'm still uh, weak for the, the 90s output, not because I watched it in that order, but I think there's something magic about Milky Way finding its way, uh, also partly experimenting. But really, how that how they started out and what their cinematic... Uh, mission statement was or, or became once they added a few movies to to the catalog you know with beyond hypothermia too many ways to be number one the odd one dies the mission and so forth i'm weak for that part because it's so nice to see them build and create a, something that definitely wasn't standard cliched stuff of late 90s hong kong cinema it certainly was not it was way more ambitious and unique yeah especially in such a critical period of uh, Hong Kong cinema where quality productions weren't, um, we, we weren't blessed with a lot of them uh, back in those days. And, uh, and uh, Johnny and Waikafa, they, uh, they stuck to their guns, I suppose. We, we, we have some thoughts on style and quirks and violence, and uh, that's why you got Expect the Unexpected and The Longest Night and, uh, and The Mission and, and all of that. And needing you, if you wanted that type of movie from Milky Way and the Fat Choice Spirit, you got those movies as well. So I guess everybody wins when all is said and done. So everybody won. What's your favorite light Milky Way movie for like light romantic comedic fluff type of movie? Is it like Fat Choice Spirit or Needing You? 
both of those actually. I mean, at one point it's needing you, but after rewatching it over the years, Fatro Spirit's also one of them. And yeah, those two are pretty much my top, yeah, uh, commercial, quote unquote, commercial Milky Way films. I've said it before, it's, I, I felt totally left out of Fat Choice Spirit because I, I, I don't know the rules of the game, so maybe that's just simply not a film for me, but maybe if I revisit it, I could just sit there and watch Lao Ching Wan being all gangster and shit. <laughs> and maybe that's enough. You know, it sounds like it's enough to just, well, Lunar New Year, he's a gangster playing Mahjong expert, I guess. We'll go with that because it's Lao Ching Wan. We'll, uh, we'll conclude this one. As for availability, originally Panorama did a nice two-disc DVD edition that even had subtitled extras, which was nice. There wasn't a given on Hong Kong DVD that they went to those lengths to, um, to make the international crowd, uh, uh, be, you know, we, we had the ability to, ta- to tap into the, the extras as well. Very nice. Uh, they subsequently did a Blu-ray of that, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure it ports all the extras from a DVD, but hopefully they did because surely the space was there. And, and a variety of Western DVD editions are still available too, including retitled editions under the name Triad Election. Both are, it's still a generic title, if you want to break it down, try election, but maybe more easier to find um, rather than just election. But uh, still, uh, and also I've seen worse retitles from of, uh, Hong Kong action movies to uh, when it came to, to the West. You know, so sometimes just they just added Hong Kong something in front of something in you know. her. Uh, Hong Kong Bad Boys was the retitle in France of Playboy Cops, for instance. <laughs> and I had a good chuckle when I saw that Hong Kong Bad Boys. Come on, it can't be that easy. Well, people in power made that decision, you know. People yeah, it's in- better title than Playboy Cops. My second favorite Jingle Ma movie, and I only like two of his movies, I think. <laughs> Goodbye, I Mr. Know. Cool, and Playboy Cops was okay. Because, again, here's the theme, Chainsaws. And likes chainsaws, so there it is. Anyway, uh, thank you very much again, Kevin, for agreeing to take the time, your perspective from from your side in terms of your expertise in uh, in uh, Hong Kong cinema and knowing the ins and outs of uh, Hong Kong cinema that I don't know as much of. That is very valuable for me as I listen and discuss with you, and obviously your perspective, knowing what uh, these movies uh, offer up. Uh, uh, in in the language department that us Westerners can't really appreciate as much is uh, always welcome and always valuable to have. So I'm really appreciative of uh, you taking the time to break down the election that way for us as well. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure talking movies with you. And uh, we're going to let you go into the night, into the Saturday night in Hong Kong. Day. He, he, here's the devoted podcast. It's 7 p.m. in Sweden right now, plus seven hours in Hong Kong. It's the middle of the night. And I still <laughs> managed to prod him and have him answer questions about complicated matters surrounding like triad elections and uh, triad democracy. He still shows up, people. So uh, big props for, to to Kema for that uh, for that devotion. So thank you, mm. thank you again. Uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs, go to our website podcastonfire.com. You'll find all the subscription links to to uh, Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Stitcher, and you can stream us on Spotify, of course, as well. And uh, the social media links are available as well. But since you are the honorary co-host and essentially the co-producer of this episode, therefore, you should and you will receive a, a big old opportunity to plug your translation business once more. So where can they find you if they want to have some stuff translated? 
Well, uh, you can come. Well, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Uh, you could come to Zakaten Media. That Z A K K A T E N M E D I A ZakatenMedia dot com. Uh, you could email me at Kevin at AsianCinema dot com. I also do once in a while update Asia and cinema, just like I did um, my Golden Horse Live blog back in uh, November. And by the time this comes out, it should be the Hong Kong Film Awards Live blog coming up. Um, so yeah, I, I'm on all those social media and slash internet presence, all that stuff. Excellent. Well, we'll link to that as well. But uh, uh, and maybe we'll return for to uh, conclude the the election uh, coverage. But uh, I thought uh, this stood so nicely on its own that uh, we didn't need to do a double bill for for the podcast. Uh, so maybe we'll return to conclude uh, the saga. Uh, it's only two movies. I'm forcing Paul to watch these young and dangerous movies with me, and we've done four. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, but but the thing is, but with that coverage, we've now veered into the spin off. So I'm thinking. We've done. We, I've have I have all the movies. I bought them, so I have all I have uh, everything except the prequel. But uh, they're, they're getting so similar now and way worse. Uh, I like two. Okay, one I didn't really. Three was okay too, and then four took a big old nosedive into poo poo quality. So, uh, so I'm thinking. I think we're done now. We like we got Sander into uh, Young and Dangerous Four. That made us veer off into Portland Street Blues, and maybe we'll we'll keep on doing that as a theme. Me and Paul, uh, I think we'll enjoy ourselves a lot more watching the side stories rather than uh, the Eakin and Jordan uh, main story and all of that. So, but uh, but I bought them all. I bought them all. I'm devoted in that way. So, but regardless, uh, thank you again, Kevin, for taking part. And uh, I'm Kennedy, and uh, with me was Mr. Kevin Ma himself. So, take us out, buddy. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, see you guys next time. 